So it seems like uh, every other week I talk to someone who's trying a new diet, you know. And uh, just this past week I talked to another friend who was telling me about what he's doing. And I tried to warn him. I said, this is a really bad time of year to start a diet, right? It's between Thanksgiving and Christmas. You got pies, you got cookies, you got Christmas parties. But he says he's going to do it. And uh, he, he told me a familiar story about his dieting attempts in the past. He said, you know, I try these diets. I get on them for two weeks and I do a really good job. And then I revert back to my old eating habits. Uh, And it's a familiar story because dieting is one of those areas of life where many people feel stuck, right? You can know the thing that you should do. You can even want to do it and then fail to do it. And there's many things like this in our lives, right? That you, you know you should do it, you want to see it change, but you feel stuck, you feel powerless to do it. It's a bondage of sorts. Well, in the Bible, the word for release from bondage, a word that's central to the passage we're looking at today is redemption. Phil Riken, who used to be the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church here in Philly, about a mile or two from where we're meeting today, defined redemption as a release from bondage through the payment of a price. A release from bondage through the payment of a price. In the ancient world, redemption was used in the slave trade, actually. When a slave was freed from their slavery, the person who bought them was said to be redeeming them. They were releasing them from their bondage through the payment of a price. In the Advent season... We're in a time of anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ, celebrating his first coming, looking forward to his second coming. But when Jesus comes, what comes with him is redemption. And so we're going to see in this passage that redemption has come. And redemption has come to doubters. Redemption has come unto true freedom. And redemption has come through a person. So first, redemption has come to doubters. Our story begins with this woman, Elizabeth, giving birth But it's not the first time she's appeared in the Gospel of Luke, the book that we're looking at. Earlier, and if you were with us a couple weeks ago, you might remember this, uh, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, is a faithful priest. An angel appears to him and tells him that his wife, Elizabeth, is going to give birth, just as she does in this story. Only Elizabeth was old, she was postmenopausal, and she had been infertile, had never given birth in her life before. And when Zechariah received this message, that his wife was going to give birth, he doubted it at first. He said, well, how, how could I know this could be true? We're old, we're advanced in years, my wife's infertile. Despite the fact that it was a promise from God, Zechariah doubted it. And that was an offense to God. Uh, we, we compared it a couple weeks ago to if somebody offers you, they tell you, I'm going to get you an awesome gift for Christmas, give it to you on Christmas Day, and you say, well, show me the receipt. You know, you're asking for proof indicating that you don't trust the person. And so Zechariah had done this and had offended God in this way. And so the proof that God gives him is a sign of judgment. Zechariah had been prevented from speaking. He had been mute for nine months now, the nine months that Elizabeth had been pregnant with this child. So now the child is born, and he's still mute. He still can't speak. And the naming of the child has to take place. So his wife Elizabeth says the child's name will be John. But the people around her are kind of like, I don't know if you're allowed to do that, right? This child's supposed to be named after his father. That was a common custom at the time. Name the child after the father or the grandfather. So they go to Zechariah and they say, hey, we know you can't talk. Your wife's trying to name this kid some other name. What do you want to do about it? And he says his name is John. Now, Zechariah doing that is an indication that now, after nine months of silence, he believes God's promise. The angel had told him this child's name will be John. The child will be great before the Lord. The child will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And now what he's doing is he's embracing that where he used to doubt it. 
Now, maybe you say, well, that's easy for him. The child's been born now. But the promise hasn't yet been totally fulfilled. The promise wasn't just the child would be born, but that he would be great, that he would prepare the way of the Lord, that he would return the people to their God. But he's saying, now I believe. Despite the times that I've distrusted, now I believe. When you've uh, offended someone, like Zechariah offended God, and you experience the consequences for that, this is not always the way we respond, right? It comes naturally to us in times like that, rather than doing what Zechariah does and just walking in a new direction, to get defensive, right? We kind of activate our inner lawyer and pull out all the reasons why what we did in the past wasn't wrong. So Zechariah, he's been silent for nine months now, right? That's plenty of time for him to be kind of cooking up a defense of himself for why his doubts were justified and why God was wrong to strike him with this sign of taking away his speech. But that's not what we find him doing. When the time comes for him to name the child, he's obedient, he trusts God, he puts his faith in the promise, and his mouth is loosed to now not defend himself, but to bless the Lord, it says, to praise him for releasing him from bondage. And so this is the first example of redemption that we have in this passage. Zechariah's mouth was in bondage. It's loosed now and freed to praise the Lord rather than to defend himself. Okay, so that's one thing we're tempted to do. We've done wrong in the past. We experienced the consequences and we just defend ourselves and double down. The problem with that though is you remain in bondage when you do that, right? You have to be willing to ask the question when you're suffering, is something I'm doing contributing to this suffering? The answer is not always yes. Sometimes bad things happen and it's just not your fault and you shouldn't blame yourself. But sometimes there are things you're doing that are contributing to your suffering. And if you're not willing to face the possibility that that's the case, you're liable to keep committing that same wrong and keep experiencing the same suffering. You remain in bondage, right? You don't get free. You don't get redemption that way. You're stuck in your past wrongs to the degree that you can't admit to them, to the degree that you have to defend them and keep covering them up. Okay, so that's one way we're prone to respond. The other way is we can pity ourselves. We can say, yes, I've done wrong and I'm such a failure for doing wrong and, and I can't believe I doubted God and what's wrong with me. Or we can pity the consequences, right? Zechariah could be saying, geez, just, you know, all these years I've served God, one time I doubt and this is what he does to me. His problem in the first place was that he focused on himself. That's why he doubted God's promise. It's no solution to that to keep focusing on yourself, right? To keep looking inward. So you can be controlled by your past wrongs by refusing to acknowledge them. You remain in bondage that way. Or you can be controlled by your past wrongs by refusing to stop punishing yourself for them. And you can be controlled by them that way. Either way, you remain in bondage. There's no freedom from your past failures. Zechariah was a godly man, okay? He was righteous. Earlier in Luke, we read that about him. But godliness doesn't mean you never fail. It doesn't mean God never disciplines you for your failures. There is a godly way, though, to respond to failure, to respond to sin, and to respond to God's discipline against your sin. It's to receive God's discipline humbly and to walk in a new direction. When God provides an opportunity for you to live differently, as he provides to Zechariah here, he chooses to live differently. God is a gracious and patient God. Despite our past failures, he provides all these ways along the road for us to walk in a new direction. When he provides those ways, take them. Take them. 
I was uh, counseling someone once who was prone to always assume the worst about people. Uh, kind of, you know, it's, it's a way of protecting yourself, right? If I assume you're out to get me, then if you are actually out to get me, I've kind of pulled back enough already that it doesn't hurt as much. And so for this person to walk in a new direction meant when she felt that urge to pull away from someone, to stay in that relationship, to stay in that friendship, and to continue moving towards that person in love, even when everything in her was telling her to run in the other direction. What in your life do you need to start walking in a new direction in? Where is God giving you opportunities to turn from your past failures and walk in a new direction? People get in weird funks with this stuff, right? You're just so used to keep doing the same thing over and over again. We can get good at confessing our sins and not as good at actually forsaking them and taking the way out that God provides. So I, I have conversations with people. I haven't been to my city group in months, you know, so it'd just be weird if I showed up again. I, I've been around this church for so long and I haven't become a member. It'd be weird if I just became a member now. What, baptism, same thing. What's weird is when you see the flaws of a past decision and the way you deal with that is to keep making the same bad decision. You're staying in bondage, right? You're not actually getting free from those things. But here's the reality. If you're here today and you're hearing these words that I'm preaching and you're hearing this passage of scripture, these promises from God, you have the opportunity today to walk in a new direction, to trust God's promise today, to obey God's commands today. And if you do that today, God will not receive that by saying, well, why didn't you do it sooner? Where you been all this time? He's a patient and gracious God. And when Zechariah names the child John, his tongue is loosed and he praises the Lord. That could be your day today. Now, when he does that, right, his tongue is loosed and he praises the Lord. There's this great joy that comes when you experience that redemption. Not only that, but the people around him. It says all his neighbors feared the Lord when this happened and they all start to wonder, what child is this? You know, what's going to happen? with this child. And fear in the Bible, when it says they feared God, it basically means they were in awe of him, right? They were amazed. Because when redemption happens in someone's life, right? When someone who was stuck gets free, it's cause for rejoicing from that person and from the people around them. If you don't have this awe in your life, if you're not amazed by God, it's probably because you don't realize the redemption that's occurred. Many times, we, we, this is the irony of your inner lawyer, your inner lawyer always wants to defend how good you are. I haven't been that bad. I've been a pretty good person. And so when God redeems you, it's not that impressive, right? Because you think, yeah, I was pretty good anyway. Like I, I hear people say, I've had a relationship with Jesus and I've tried to obey him my whole life. Really? Your whole life? <laughs> like there was never a day where you just ran from him? Like Paul says we were all dead in our trespasses and sins before God saved us. Are you the exception to that? The Bible says there's no one who seeks for God by nature. Are you the exception to that? Why be the exception to it? And when you can be honest and just admit that you were running from God, even if you seemed nice, even if you looked like a good person to other people, that in your heart you didn't love him, you loved something else, you loved something you were getting from him, and then he redeemed you out of that, that's cause for joy. That's cause for awe. You don't have to defend your former self. John Calvin, uh, commenting on this passage, said, Zechariah was not ashamed to connect his own dishonor to the praises of the glory of God. 
Don't be ashamed to connect your own dishonor to the praises of the glory of God. If God's going to get more glory through you being honest about who you've been and now how he's set you free and who he's making you now, go ahead and be honest about that and be in awe and rejoice and let others participate in that as well. So God redeems Zechariah's tongue from bondage so that Zechariah might praise the Lord. And then Zechariah does. He blesses the Lord. And in verse 68, we kind of get the beginning of this long prophecy of Zechariah's where he's rejoicing and praising the Lord. And what we're going to see there is that this thing that God has done in Zechariah's life is not just a thing God is doing for him. Redemption is not only for him, but for the people. And it's a redemption unto a true freedom. Second point that we're going to look at. So if you were with us a couple weeks ago, you heard me say that Zechariah and Elizabeth were a microcosm of the nation of Israel. And similarly, we have that happening here. His tongue was loosed so that he could speak again, so that he'd be free to bless the Lord. And now, when we get to verse 68, what do we read? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, right? Not only has he redeemed me, he's redeemed his people with the coming of this child. Now, if Zechariah had the bondage of not being able to speak, what's the bondage that Israel's under that he's talking about? Well, we learn about that in verse 71. It says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Throughout the history of Israel as a nation, they've been in bondage to different enemies who have hated them and who have oppressed them. From the time God first redeemed them, they were in slavery in Egypt. After that, they went into captivity in Assyria for the northern tribes and Babylon for the southern tribes. And then at the time of Jesus' coming, in the time of this passage that we're looking at today, they're under the dominion of the Roman Empire. So Zechariah is saying, blessed be God, he has come to set us free from those enemies who have oppressed us, who have put us in this difficult bondage, who have hated us. Now, why does he want to be free from those enemies? Why is it such a good thing to be set free from them? Well, because we all want to be free, right? Not exactly. What do you want to be free for? What do you want to be free unto? Look at verses 74 and 75. It says, That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He's saying true freedom is freedom to serve the Lord in righteousness and holiness all our days. Freedom is like money. Uh, people who study this, you know, like, People say, I want more money, but that's not really a helpful thing. It's not really valuable unless you know what you want to spend your money on. Freedom's like that too. Well, I want more free time. To do what? What do you want to give your time to? What do you want to be free for? You have to not only ask, this is what I want to be free from. You have to say, this is what I want to be free to do. This is what what I want to be free for. This is what I want to give my life to. Zechariah is saying, We want to be free from these enemies because we want to be able to serve the Lord without fear in righteousness and holiness all our days. True freedom is service to the Lord. But that's not usually what we mean when we talk about freedom. When we talk about freedom, especially kind of culturally today, we usually mean the freedom to do whatever I want to do, the freedom to act on my own desires. So um, my son's not old enough for me to have seen the movie Frozen, but uh, I'm, told, I'm told there's a song in it that's quite popular and that's, you know, gets stuck in people's heads and catchy, so 
Sorry if that happens to you when I quote it, but um, it's called Let It Go. At one point in the song, the singer Elsa says this, It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. So that's freedom, the way we talk about it today. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I'm free to act on my own desires. It's not the freedom this passage is talking about. Because that is not real freedom. The problem with that is, there are desires that if you act on them, if you're free to act on them, will actually bring you further into bondage. What do I mean? Here's one reason. There are some desires you have that are a desire to be something you were not created to be. So that if you act on that, you're becoming less and less of who you were actually made to be. So when I was in sixth grade, I made the big career decision. I told my parents, I'm going to be an NBA basketball player. This might be when I grow up. Uh, Now, if my parents had looked at me and they said, you know what? No right, no wrong, no rules for you. You're free. If you want to drop out of school and just train for basketball eight hours a day, you're free to do that, right? And I would have been free in some sense. I probably would have felt like, wow, someone's finally letting me do what I really want to do. The problem is, if I spent the next six years of my life doing that, I'd have still been five foot nine inches, right? I might not have gotten another inch on my vertical jump, right? I wouldn't have qualified for the NBA. But now I would have spent six years of my life giving it to something that I wasn't actually created to do, which means I wasn't spending those six years doing the things that I was created to do. I wouldn't have been able to get into college. I wouldn't have been able to get a job. I I would have been less free, right? I would have had less options. I would have been in bondage to this desire to be something I wasn't created to be. There are some things you want to do that God just didn't make you to do. And if you choose to act on those things, you're going further into bondage, actually. I know that's kind of heresy in our world today that says you can be whatever you want to be. And if you pay attention to science and technology, to public policy, a lot of that stuff is there to alter reality so that I can be whatever it is that I want to be. We have a virtual reality industry, right, that's, that's trying to do this. And I'm not saying it's all bad, but there's limits to it, okay? When you take the goggles off, you're still gonna be you. God didn't make you for that world. He made you to be something in this world that you can't be if you act on every one of your desires because some of them are leading you astray. Okay, so that's one reason that some of your desires will lead you further into bondage. They're desires to be things you weren't created to be. Second reason, there's a lot of reasons. The second one I mentioned today is some of your desires, if you act on them, you'll need them more in the future. So I have a friend who's uh, part of this church is in counseling for anxiety. And one of his biggest anxieties is financial, his financial future, his money. Whenever he gets anxious about that, what he wants to do, what his desires tell him to do, is to go look at his bank accounts and kind of do some financial analysis. But what he's been learning, he's talking with a psychiatrist about this, is that when he does that, he's actually building up neural pathways to where now, whenever he gets anxious, he has to go do that. He needs it more now in order to deal with his anxious feelings. Now, maybe you say, well, okay, fine. I guess that's just what he's going to have to do. But he can't always do that, right? He can't spend his whole day looking at his bank accounts. He's got a job. He's got a family. There's other things that God has assigned him in life. But when he's free, quote unquote, to do what he wants to do, he goes and looks at the bank accounts and becomes less free every time he does it. He becomes more and more enslaved to it. Because he's asking that account, that checkup, to give him a security that it can't deliver. 
it can't actually make him more in control of his future because he's just not. And the more he goes to it, the more he's free to act on that desire, the further in bondage he goes. Not all your desires, if you act on them, will set you free. So what, what am I saying? Service to the Lord will constrain you. It will mean there are some desires you have that you say no to because you want to serve him with your life. But when you do that, you are choosing the path to true freedom. He's the one you were actually created for. You were created to serve him in some unique way that he has made you to do. But you were created to serve him. When you say no to a sexual desire that doesn't match the way God has created sexuality to work in the Bible, and you choose to use your body instead to serve the Lord and where applicable to serve your spouse, you're becoming more free, not less free. When you choose to use your money, not to get bigger and better and easier life for yourself, but to serve the Lord by giving it away to the poor, to the, to the work of the gospel, to people like Maryland serving internationally, you're becoming more free of the need for that money rather than less free. Service to the Lord is true freedom. You were created for him. And he's the one who actually can provide the security, the significance, the hope, and the happiness that you're looking for through those desires. When my friend gets on his bank account, again, he feels more secure, but he's no more in control of his future. The Lord, he really is in control of your future, right? When you trust him and you give yourself over to him, you're trusting the one who can actually provide security. You're trusting the one who can give a hope and happiness, a significance and security that none of these other selfish desires can possibly provide. God doesn't, God doesn't redeem us and release us from bondage and then give us over to the slavery of self and give us over to our self-desires. He redeems us unto true freedom. He redeems us unto the service of the Lord, the one place that true freedom can be found. That's the redemption that has come. But this redemption comes then, we're going to see, through a person. So in verse 76, uh, the focus of Zechariah turns from um, praising the Lord for his redemption to speaking to his son uh, directly. He says in verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This is just an aside. This is not really the main point of the passage, but parents in the room and fathers especially, uh, speak to your kids about who they are. So see, what, see what Zechariah is doing there? He's telling us, he's speaking identity into his son. He's speaking purpose into his son. He's saying, this is your role. This is your purpose in God's plan of redemption. I love the way uh, New City Catechism question four puts it. It says, how and why did God make us? God made us male and female in his own image, to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. So, so say to your sons, God made you male in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. Say to your daughters, God made you female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. Because here's the reality. The world and the devil are going to talk to your kids about who they are and lie to them about who they are. Speak the truth to them 
about who they are, about their identity and about their purpose. Even as you see that developing in that, speak that into them. Okay, that's not the main point of the passage. Let's get back to what this passage is more directly speaking to. Zechariah speaks to his son because he has a role in this plan of redemption, right? He's saying, God's redemption has come for the nation and you, son, you have a role in this and your role is to go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And then he says in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. This is beautiful. He's not saying to his son, redemption has come, so you go be the redeemer. He's saying to his son, no, you just go tell people about the redeemer. You prepare the way for the Lord and give knowledge of salvation to his people. As God's people, as God's servants, God has not told us to go be the redeemer. He's given us a message about the redeemer and said, now go receive this message yourself and give to others the knowledge of this salvation. How you do that, actually, there's a lot of freedom, right? John, this child, was born to be a prophet. He was going to spend a lot of his time preaching it. My job as a pastor, I spend a lot of my time preaching it. Many of you, you have other ways that you serve the Lord, that he's given you the freedom to serve him in the medical profession, as engineers, as professors, as custodians, as social workers, as restaurant workers, as whatever else it may be. But here's the deal. No matter what your calling is, if you have the knowledge of salvation, but your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors don't, how could you not want that for them, right? How could you not want that message of redemption to be known in their lives as well? Maybe, maybe you say, well, I, don't, I just don't know it that well. I don't know how I'd explain it to them. Well, that's okay. Just get started, right? And learn as you go. Learn on the job. Invite them to come and hear it, right? We've got this candlelight service happening next Sunday. We gave you those cards on your seat that you can give to someone this week to invite them to join you next Sunday for the candlelight service. It's, it's a time of year where some people who might never go to church would actually be open to coming to a church service with you because it's Christmas. So can't hurt to actually just invite them to hear that they might hear the message of salvation, right? But I want to push a little further and suggest you, you probably could know enough about this to communicate it to someone else if you know the essential message, the essential summary. The essential summary is right there in verse 77 to give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The central message of salvation is the forgiveness of sins. See, Zechariah, he's not not saying here, God, redeem us from our enemies because they're the bad guys and we're the good guys. And we've always wanted to just serve you in righteousness and holiness, and so if you would just redeem us, we would be free to do that and life would be great. Israel was the victim here. They have been oppressed throughout their history. But they're not just victims. They're sinners too. And they know it. Zechariah is saying, I've had a rough nine months. I haven't been able to speak. But I was guilty, right? We need forgiveness for our sins if we are really to move on. If you're guilty, which Zechariah was, which Israel was, and which you and I are, of sin before God, full redemption only comes if the sins are forgiven. For some reason, a lot of my friends are making their way into this sermon, but I'll tell you about another friend of mine. Um, he's, uh, he's in debt for child support payments because of seasons of unemployment in his life. So now when he gets a job, he has a very hard time making positive financial progress because as soon as he gets the job, his paychecks go to paying down his child support debt. And, and I feel for him in that, right? Like I feel bad for him. I, I want better for him. But I know that he, he 
He deserves that to some extent. There's a demand of justice on him because of something he did, right? And because of a failure on his part to make good on a commitment in his past. And so he can't really be free, right? He can't really be redeemed unless the penalty that he owed is paid, unless it's forgiven, right? And then he can move on. He can't just say, well, but I'm really doing better now, you know? Okay, but there's a debt, right? There's a debt to justice that still has to be paid. And God is a God of justice. For redemption to happen, we can't just say, but we're doing better now. Even for Zechariah to be forgiven for his doubts, he can't just say, well, I'm blessing the Lord now. There has to be a forgiveness of sin. Until your sins are forgiven, you'll always be stuck in them. You'll always be in bondage to them. Because you can't get away from it. You can't get away from that sense that there's something wrong with me. And you can try all you want to defend yourself, let the inner lawyer come out. You can, you can go into self-pity and endless self-deprecation. You, you can act on all your desires to find an acceptance outside of God, to find somebody to love you and affirm you, and it can't provide it. Because when it comes down to it, there's still a debt that has to be paid. And when you've sinned against the infinite being, the penalty is an infinite penalty that you can't afford. So who will pay it? Not John. Not the child that's born in this passage. Because the child born in this passage came to prepare people for another. So verses 78 and 79 say, The forgiveness of sins comes because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And when Jesus Christ comes, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When we were in the darkness of our sins, when the shadow of the death that we deserved was cast over us and enraptured us, God, the God who said, let there be light in the beginning, came to earth on Christmas in Jesus Christ to shine his light on the people who sit in darkness. That the darkness of our sins, that the darkness of death would be removed from us and that we might have peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was the freest being who ever lived. He was God, right? I mean, God is the, he sits in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Jesus was free to act on any desire he had. And what did he desire to do? He desired to come to earth to become a human and be bound in a body and ultimately be bound on a cross to take the judgment, to pay the penalty that our sins deserved so that we could be forgiven. The infinite debt that we owed was paid to God through the infinite life, the infinite value of the life of the one true Son of God who had done no wrong, who had never doubted, who had always acted on his Father's desires, who had always served the Lord, and yet he was cut off and he was bound and his, his mouth was stopped in death so that we could be freed with him to serve the Lord without fear. And his life was so powerful, so majestic, that he rose from the dead, that he went all the way into the shadow of death and walked out in newness of life, the light of the world, 
and now guides our feet into the path of peace by guiding us to himself, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is himself our peace. Why doubt him? Why doubt him any longer? No matter how many times you've doubted him, no matter how many times you've disobeyed him, believe in him today. Trust in him today. And his word to you will not be, why didn't you do it sooner? It will be freedom. He will forgive your sins and he will set you free from the, king, from the rule of self, from the bondage to self, to the freedom of serving him without fear. You don't need to fear people. They're just not that powerful. They're not as powerful as your God. You don't need to fear the judgment of God because your sins have been forgiven. The debt has been paid in full. Here is a security, a significance, a hope, a happiness that none of your desires can deliver. Your sins have been forgiven. The judgment has been removed in Jesus Christ. The light has shone on those who sit in darkness. Redemption has come. Serve the Lord without fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our great redeemer who has purchased us from bondage at the price of your own son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that redemption has now come on those of us who are the very people who have sinned against you, who have wronged you, who have turned from you. And we give you glory now. We bless your name because you have redeemed us, because though the price was infinite, you paid it in full. Lord God, uh, set us free today to serve you without fear. God, whatever we're afraid of, whether it's people, whether it's your judgment, God, set us free from it. May we so know the forgiveness of sins that we worship you and praise you without fear. Free us from ourselves, Lord. God, uh, mortify, crucify, kill in us that part of us that still wants to just do what we want to do. Conform our desires to the service of you in righteousness and holiness for all of our days, for in that is our true freedom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.